0: The following recording is from the 2022 Seminars at Steamboat and was recorded live at Strings Pavilion. To learn more about Seminars at Steamboat or to view the video recording of this seminar, please visit seminarsatsteamboat.org.
1: Good evening. My goodness, it is so great to be back here in this wonderful venue and to be in person again. I can't tell you how happy I am. Welcome to Seminars at Steamboat and the beginning of our 20th, count that 20, 20th season. I'm Walt Dabbert, I'm the Seminars Chair, and it's my pleasure to extend greetings to those of you who've been with us for many years, to those of you who were with us when we were virtual the past two years, and to those of you who may be here for the first time and we hope it won't be the last. For two decades, Seminars has presented an impressive number of prescient, nonpartisan public policy talks by distinguished experts, and we continue that tradition with this summer's lineup of five seminars on very timely and compelling topics. Many people have made this seminar possible, and I'd like to recognize our all-volunteer board who have organized the program and secured our speakers. Stand up, please, board. It's a a pleasure and an honor to work with them. I'd also like to give a special shout out to two individuals. I'd like to give a shout out to Ken Spruill, board member, who navigates us through an ever-changing array of technology and keeps it up-to-date and largely (laughs) user-friendly. And I would also like to give a shout-out to our program administrator, Deb Metcher. (laughs) Deb is the glue that keeps things together, and she does it so well. We are especially grateful for the financial support of all our donors who make it possible for seminars to continue to be free to the public. Special thanks go to this evening's program sponsor, the Valley Community Foundation, and thanks as well to supporting sponsors Kate and Malcolm Hawke and, and Gay Ron. If you miss or want to re-watch a seminar, you can simply go to the website where you'll be able to get more information about our speaker as well as review the, the seminar, any seminar for at least the last decade and more. Uh, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to encourage you to consider sharing these recordings with your friends and colleagues abroad. This is a a, a smaller world, and it's a very interconnected world. And I think there's a message here that we can share, and of course also share it with those closer to home. As in previous years, KUNC, Public Radio of Northern Colorado, is providing uh, podcasts of the seminars, and you can you can hear those podcasts by going to kunc.org and going to the seminars. Uh, landing page. Our speaker this evening is Dr. William Galston, and here to introduce him and to moderate the Q&A session is board member and seminar's co-founder, Jane Stein.
2: I have to say it's so good to be back. I think anyone who gets up here is going to have to say it. Today's topic on how politically divided our country is couldn't be more timely and more concerning, especially with reactions to recent Supreme Court rulings on abortion, guns, religion, upcoming uh, elections in November. Since the Roe decision, an Axios poll found that more Democrats and Republicans say they have little or nothing in common with the other party, and independents basically say a pox on both of you. (laughs) No matter what your perspective is politically, times are troubling. Closely contested elections aren't new, remember Bush v. Gore in 2000, but responses to them are more bitter today. Fortunately for us, our speaker is going to put this into perspective with his talk, deeply divided and closely divided. Bill Galston has been observing and studying American politics for decades. You have his full report on what he's done, but I'll briefly say he's been involved in six presidential campaigns, served in the White House, has taught political studies, and since 2006 has been at Brookings where he's a senior fellow in governance studies. A prolific author, he writes a column weekly for the Wall Street Journal, and his most recent book is Anti-Pluralism, The Populist Threat to Liberal Democracy. Please welcome Bill Galston.
0: Well, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here, uh, not only to kick off the 20th season of this seminar series, but also to represent the coming back together in person of, uh, of people, citizens, you know, who've been separated by the pandemic for too long. I'm sure you're as all, you're, you are all as tired of it as I am. Unfortunately, it's not quite over yet. Uh, I wanna thank uh, Walt, not only for getting us started, but also for relieving me of the necessity to apologize for a terrible faux pas. Uh, I was told before I got on the plane uh, that wearing a jacket would be a no-no, <laughs> as I gave this talk. But now that uh, now that Walt has blazed the trail, uh, I hap I happily follow him. Uh, and uh, you know, Jane, thanks for that kind introduction. Uh, as you. As you talked about my six presidential campaigns, my full history of political failure flashed before my eyes because <laughs> what you didn't say was that five of them were losers. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, you know, the sixth was in 1992 and that led to a rather remarkable two and a half years in the White House. One other remark You probably have all heard of, and many of you have read, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And if so, you will no doubt have heard that Tocqueville thought that the heart of American democracy was not so much in its political institutions, but in its cultural practices, uh, in citizens coming together, into what is now called civil society. That, he said, was America at its best. Guess what? That's you, right? It wasn't government that organized this series. To the best of my knowledge, it wasn't a private corporation trying to make a name for itself. Uh, It was a group of citizens uh, who came together and said, This would enrich our community if we could do it and make it work. So they did, and it did. This is America, as I said, at its best. Unfortunately, when we raise our eyes from America at its best to the rest of the country, we see the opposite. We see America at its worst. At least we see an America at one of the low points that had his hit in my lifetime. And I'm gonna use for the guiding thread of these these remarks my own lifetime. Uh, We're in an impasse now that I suspect nobody in this room has seen before, at least not to this extent, not this pervasive. Uh, A nation deeply divided with fellow citizens at each other's throats, with democracy itself at risk. I have two questions that I want to discuss with you tonight, not political scientists to students, but citizen to citizen. How did this happen to us? And what can we do about it? In the time allotted to me, I can't possibly do justice to either of those questions, let alone both of them. But I wanna offer some thoughts uh, that I've thought hard about but they're not formal academic thoughts. Uh, They're thoughts about my own life. And I can see, just by looking at this audience and noting how many of you go to the same hair colorist that I do, (laughs) uh, you know, that I think that what I'm going to talk about will resonate with some of your experiences as well. So, I am one of the very earliest baby boomers. I was born in January of 1946. My father was still overseas on El Canala, at the time. I was born in the Brooklyn Navy Yard where my mother ate beans for three days and then made her premature escape (laughs) because she couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, So 13 years later, in the fall of 1959, I entered high school, which in my community began in the ninth grade. So let me start with 1959. I'm not gonna talk about what happened in 1959 because frankly not a lot did. I'm gonna talk to you instead about what had not happened in 1959 just to show you the baseline for my remarks. Here's what hadn't happened yet. Rachel Carson had not yet written her book, Silent Spring, and the modern environmental movement as we know it was in its infancy. Betty Friedan had not yet written and published The Feminine Mystique, which triggered the second great wave of feminism in the United States. Martin Luther King had not yet given his I Have a Dream speech. Uh, The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a distant aspiration and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 seemed well beyond the reach of the political system as it was then constituted. The Goldwater uprising against the Republican establishment was still a few years off. Uh, the Stonewall uprising that triggered the gay rights movement as we now know it was 10 years off. Roe v. Wade was 13 years in the future and the reentrance of evangelical Christians into politics after their retreat from it in 1924 after the Scopes trial was not on the minds of anybody including people like Jerry Falwell, who denounced vigorously at this time the idea that Christian preachers should be involved in politics at all. Instead, in the fall of 1959, we had a consensus on economics. Uh, The victory of Dwight Eisenhower over Robert Taft in 1952 meant that the Republican Party had made its peace with the basic building blocks of the New Deal, and the argument then was who could run the New Deal most honestly and efficiently. Uh, And so in 1952, uh, Eisenhower and the Republican Party didn't campaign against the New Deal, they campaigned against Harry Truman's alleged corruption in the administration of the New Deal. And Keynesian economics, which was very controversial, in the 1930s had become the lingua franca, so to speak, of, uh, of not only the economics profession, but also how economics was discussed during this period. A few years later, Milton Friedman, the great monetarist, admitted that, quote, we're all Keynesians now, a sentiment that was replicated almost word-for-word word by Richard Nixon in 1971. Foreign policy? Cold War anti-communism was the consensus of the two political parties, and the only question is, who could wage the Cold War most effectively? The cultural agenda, there wasn't one. Everything that we now take for granted at the center of our public life was surrounded by a cone of silence, and as you heard a minute ago, that cone of silence was largely attributable to the fact that the people who broke that silence had not yet broken it in 1959. So that's the baseline, the apparent tranquility of the 1950s and the Eisenhower years and the post-World War II consensus that it symbolized. let run the reel forward another three years to June 11th of 1962. The day that John F. Kennedy appeared at Yale University's commencement to give a speech whose significance I think has been largely overlooked. As it happened as the son of a Yale professor, I was there. I got to see and hear John F. Kennedy deliver that address. And he made a very important, although it turned out, deeply mistaken point as the centerpiece of that address. He said, unlike the 1930s, the real differences today, this is June of 1962, are, quote, matters of degree. And he went on to say, flash out that thought. He said, the central domestic issues of our time relate not to clashes of philosophy or ideology, but to ways and means of reaching common goals, to research, to search for sophisticated solutions to complex and obstinate issues. So, the debate isn't about what we should do the debate about how best is to do do what we all agree must be done. President of the United States, summing up not only the political world in June of 1962, but also a long stream of scholarship in the 1950s, culminating in Daniel Bell's famous collection of essays, which was labeled the end of ideology. All right. Now, for one of the most remarkable examples of synchronicity that I've ever seen, I checked, I researched what I'm about to tell you. Literally, as I was listening to President Kennedy deliver that speech, members of the newly created Students for a Democratic Society, remember them, were debating the draft of their proposed manifesto, which was issued four days later under the name of, I'm sure many of you remember this, the Port Huron Statement. Okay, and here's how the drafters of the Port Huron Statement came at the question that President Kennedy had addressed in his speech. Here's what the statement said we ourselves, referring to the students of this generation, are imbued with urgency. Yet the message of our society is that there is no viable alternative to the present. Beneath the reassuring tones of the politicians, beneath the common opinion that America will, quote, muddle through, beneath the stagnation of those who have closed their minds to the future, is the pervading feeling that there are simply no alternatives, that our times have witnessed the exhaustion, not only of utopias, but of any new departures. So there you have it, side by side. And as we know, John F. Kennedy, in this respect, was speaking for the past. And the students for a democratic society, whatever you may think of what they said and what they wrought, were speaking for the future and not the distant future, the immediate future. Because just as John F. Kennedy was pronouncing the end of ideology, uh, ideological contestation broke out and nearly overwhelmed our institutions. Now, The Students for Democratic Society had in a way predicted this and they certainly welcomed it because they offered in the Port Huron statement a critique of the party system as it then stood. They said, here are the two key points, there is too much ideological overlap between the parties and therefore there isn't a clear choice between them. This is horrible. Surely, our politics ought to present the citizens of the United States with a clear choice between political parties, agendas, principles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they went on to uh, issue a second complaint against the party system of 1962. It was too focused on local issues, there wasn't enough focus on national concerns. Well, I think from the perspective of 60 years later, we can say those problems have been solved. (laughs) The question is, you know, is the solution worse than the disease? Uh, I know a lot of people who, if they could wave a magic wand right now, would like to bring back as much of the party system of 1962 as they could, right? There were many flaws with our democracy of the the period, not the least the exclusion of so many of our fellow citizens from the franchise, but at least our constitutional institutions were not at risk. So where are we now, 60 years after the events that I've just related? As I said, we've certainly eliminated the problems the drafters of the Port Huron Statement identified, but unfortunately, as we all know, we have replaced these problems with their opposites. We have moved from pervasive consensus to record polarization, partisan polarization, not only with regard to substance, but also emotional Polarization, what the political scientists call affective polarization. We not only disagree with each other, we dislike each other. And dislike is a polite word. <laughs> each party regards the other as an existential threat to its existence and a mortal threat. To basic American principles. This is symmetrical. Uh, I've often speculated. Many of you probably saw the Sidney Poitier movie "Guess Who's Coming to Dinner," which was made, you know, which was made more than half a century ago. Well, how would we remake that film? <laughs> uh, obviously, you know, it would be you know, a well-brought-up young suburban woman, you know, bringing home a MAGA hat-wearing boyfriend. (laughs) So not only have we gone from consensus to record polarization, we have gone from complacency to record mistrust of our institutions and of one another. And this started about the time that I started my speech in the mid-1960s, but it proceeded a lot farther and a lot faster than we may remember. Let me just give you a snapshot. In 1965, the venerable Gallup organization asked a question that it has asked every year for decades, you know, do you trust the government, that is the federal government, to do the right thing all or most of the time, that's A, or B, only some or hardly any of the time. In 1965, 75% of Americans said that they trusted the federal government to do the right thing all or most of the time. 10 years later, when that question was asked in 1975, it wasn't three quarters, it was one quarter. It wasn't 75%, it was 25%. What happened? Well, I think we can all answer that question. But what happened during that period was just the beginning of what might be thought of as the great unraveling of America. You know, where you know, our ability to live together despite our differences, had been replaced by an obsessive focus on our differences and a growing sense that maybe we can't live together. You know, I've seen the word secession more in the past 12 months than I did in the previous 12 years. I don't think it's a serious idea or a serious threat, but the fact that the word is used so much already reveals something about our circumstances. And speaking of the Gallup organization, Uh, they released another survey last week. Public trust in American institutions, not only only public and governmental institutions, but also the private sector and civil society as well, had fallen to the lowest level ever seen or recorded in their survey. 27% on a one to 100 scale of, of trust. And the collapse among political institutions is particularly notable. A double-digit drops in confidence and trust in the presidency and in the Supreme Court. Uh, And the only reason Congress didn't follow suit was that public trust in Congress was already barely at double digits (laughs) last year. And so as of now, it declined by five points from 12% to seven percent. Seven percent of Americans think that the first branch of government, the Article I branch, the branch that our founders were sure was at the heart of the great constitutional democratic experiment. Seven percent said, yeah, we have confidence in the ability of our lawmakers to make laws that will effectively serve the common good. How did we get from here to there? Uh, I think you can all probably answer that question as well as I can. Uh, In in the wake of Vietnam, uh, we had the collapse of Cold War anti-communism and the rise of contestation over the conduct of foreign policy. Remember the brouhaha? over aid to the Nicaraguan Contras in 1986 that could have led to the impeachment of the President of the United States. In the 1950s, nobody would have blinked an eye at that. President Eisenhower did that and much worse in Guatemala and that was just taken as part of his anti-communist responsibility. In cultural matters, uh, we had the, the rise of the counterculture. You know, the collapse of the complacent silence and, faithfully, the rise of a politics dominated by social movements. That was not what we saw in the 1940s and the 1950s. But social movements that we now take for granted, whether the environmental movement, feminist movement, same-sex marriage, The list goes on and on. We take it for granted that those movements, not just those ideas, not just those policies, but those social movements, will be driving forces in our politics. Uh, In economics, what happened? Well, there are plenty of people in this room who remember the 1970s, and that's the answer, the 1970s happened. You know, Keynesian economics said that that you couldn't have stagflation but we had it, Uh, and the combination of of, uh, abrupt changes in the economy's growth rate plus the surge of inflation undermined the Keynesian consensus, and by the late 1970s, Jack Kemp and others were already talking about supply-side economics, and what that meant was that there was no longer a common basis of agreement about fundamentals on which to argue about economic policy. If one party says, when you cut taxes, revenues go down, and the other party says, when you cut taxes, revenues go up, it's a little hard to take the next step in the (laughs) policy discussion. Uh, And of course, uh, I mean, and and the list of disruptions goes goes on. Uh, Arguably, the most important thing that President Johnson ever did was to push for first the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and then the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, Two pieces of legislation that led pretty quickly to the collapse of the New Deal Coalition that had held the Democratic Party together uh, and had forged a democratic majority in the country for decades. Uh, In order to sustain the New Deal, Dwight Eisen, uh, rather Franklin Roosevelt, had made a devil's bargain with the segregationist South, that he would include African Americans in, in economic programs to the greatest extent that he could without disrupting the patterns of segregation on which the Southern members of the Democratic Party insisted. And finally, and when I started thinking about these remarks, I didn't realize that they they would be bookended by events, but Roe v. Wade brought into American politics a clash of moralities. Might even say the clash of metaphysics, when does life begin? What does the Constitution tell us about when life begins? Well, well, when you're a person, good answer. But what is personhood? When does that? How do you argue about these questions? We never really solved that problem, did we? But there was a new element in our, in our politics. And all of these developments that I've just chronicled uh, contributed to the reality that we now face where we are deeply divided and on many of these issues it's not entirely clear how we're going to make progress. But I want to add an element to this analysis. Not only are we deeply divided, but we're also closely divided. And by what? By that I mean that the two political parties are pretty evenly balanced. And that itself has had negative effects on our politics. And let me give you a few statistics to illustrate what I mean by this. I I did an analysis of the past 100 years of presidential elections. Uh, And if you look at the elections, the 17 elections between 1920 and 1984, Of those 17 elections, 10, a clear majority, were resolved by margins, victorious margins of 10 percentage points or more. Five of them were resolved by landslides of 20% 20 or more. And what is characteristic of politics when you have those kinds of margins is that you have a political party, the winner, that has been authorized to govern the country on the basis of the program that it has laid out. Now let's compare that to the nine presidential elections since 1984, since Ronald Reagan's uh, very successful race for reelection. I can tell you about every single day of that race. Because I was Walter Mondale's policy director for two and a half years. Uh, And, you know, I can, to sum up, I was six feet tall with brown hair when that campaign began. (laughs) So, since 1984, not a single presidential victor has gotten close to a 10 percentage point victory. Not one. Five of the past presidential elections have been resolved by less than five percentage points. In four of the past six presidential elections, the winner got less than 50% of the popular vote. And in two of the past six presidential elections, the electoral college winner actually lost the popular vote, and you know who they are. Well, that seemed to speak for itself, but I decided that it would be fun to add up all the votes cast for national office since 1988. And here are the sums. Of all of those votes, Democrats have gotten 51%, Republicans have gotten 48%, and minor parties and independent candidates have gotten the rest. So, We are not only deeply divided, we are closely divided, and close division means that neither political party is really authorized for very long to run the country. Uh, And it's not just a question of how big your margin is, but in contemporary politics, uh, it's frequently two years are out and out, You have two years, And then, because the people don't like what you're doing, the other party gets to take over at least one House of Congress, and it's lights out for a serious policy agenda. Okay, we saw that that happen to Barack Obama in 2010. We saw that happened to Donald Trump in 2018. And most pundits, and I have to say on this point, I agree with them, say that it will happen for a third straight time in the elections later this year. What are the consequences of these narrow divisions? Well, here are some of them. The more frequent changes of party control mean that there's an imperative to do what you can right away. Because you may have the power in the executive branch and in the House and the Senate today, but the odds are that you won't tomorrow. So you try to do everything in a big rush. And that frequently leads to poorly planned policy, poorly executed in the politics of trying to enact it. And president after president who comes into office with a unified control of the government experiences great difficulty in in enacting the important pieces of that agenda into law. And I'm not just talking about Joe Biden in the past 18 months. Uh, I was in Bill Clinton's White House in a pretty senior position, and he entered office with a rush. But the first two years were a near catastrophe, right? When virtually everything that he tried to do was rebuffed. Not all of it but the legislative efforts, particularly healthcare reform, that defined his first two years in office. But it's not just that you try to do too much too fast. With narrow margins, anything that gives the opposition party an advantage or reduces the enthusiasm of your own voters could make the difference between victory and defeat, which means you don't compromise with the other party. You don't want to share credit with them for anything you want that credit for yourself because getting credit for legislation could mean the difference between victory and defeat. But unfortunately, when the two parties are closely divided, not compromising with the other party frequently means that you end up empty handed. And then the American people are deeply disappointed that a president, yet another presidency uh, that began with such high hopes you know, has seen that ship of state you know, wrecked on the shoals of reality. So my argument in short is that this combination of deep division and close division has produced a substantial portion of the toxic politics of our time. And this is very dangerous. If the two political parties are as badly divided as they now are, then the stakes of losing are much higher. Because it isn't just that the, political, the other political party, the opposition party, will do things differently. It means that they're gonna try to turn your world upside down. They don't agree with you about much of anything. And if you lose, you lose just about everything. Well, what does that mean? It means that there is a temptation to do everything to avoid defeat. There's a temptation to break the rules if you think it's necessary to avoid defeat. And, just as important, if you are defeated, to do everything possible to ensure that the victorious party does not enjoy the fruits of its electoral success, right? You are not interested in cooperating with the newly elected president or the newly elected presidential uh, congressional majority. What you want to do is to stop it in its tracks. I could go on in this vein, but let me conclude on a more hopeful note. Almost any note, I guess, would be more hopeful. So, this is my second question, and it's always the harder question, is what can we do to change this? Now, the answer to that question depends on what we mean by we. If if we're talking about key actors in the political system who are trying to bring about fundamental institutional change, which many people believe is necessary, not just institutional change, but constitutional change, well, that will be difficult for the people in this room to do much about, although you could all be part of something much larger. But I think that that is is something, I won't say improbable, but distant. We're not gonna overturn the electoral college tomorrow we're not gonna overturn what many people believe is the over-representation of small and rural states tomorrow. There are all sorts of flaws in our Constitution. They're gonna be there for a while. So what can we, that is you and me acting as individual citizens, do to try to reverse this vicious cycle that has divided us, that has threatened our democracy, and that has made it so very difficult to make significant progress on a long list of important uh, public problems. Here's a short list of what you and I can do. First of all, there are, there's a growing number of grassroots movements, civil society organizations, who promote organized dialogue across lines of partisanship and ideology. Citizen to citizen. That's a long road, but it's really important that some organizations are beginning to walk down that road. And if you hear about an organization that does that, and there are many now, consider supporting it. Consider getting involved, right? Because the voices of people like the people in this room, can begin the healing process, but only if you're there. Second, if political candidates, regardless of party, credibly pledge to work across the aisle with people of the other party who are willing to talk honestly about the problems and to engage in the give and take of political compromise, if that pledge is credible because it's backed up by the candidate's record, uh, either in private life or public life or both, consider supporting that candidate. Third suggestion. A lot of us live in areas where the party you don't belong to really dominates that area, whether it's a congressional district, or a county, or even a state. Does that mean you're shut out of politics? No, it does not. Many states have rules that permit people to change party registration, frequently with not all that much of a lead time, uh, and it is perfectly possible to cross that line and then support the most reasonable candidates on the other side. You know your party can't win, but at the very least, the most reasonable candidate on the other side could do so in part with your support, just starting with the party, party primary. Uh, if I may per- be permitted a contemporary aside, I think that the practice of doing the opposite of what I just recommended, and that is crossing party lines in order to try to promote the prospects of the least moderate and least responsible candidates in the hopes that surely you can beat them, well, that's very risky business because if the political circumstances are adverse, you could end up with a whole bunch of really horrible people in the Congress of the United States and elsewhere in governors in, 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 you know, in the gubernatorial mansion, you know, in the attorney general's office. So please don't do that. <laughs> uh, you can support, and this is my fourth recommendation, national organizations that work hard to bring elected Democrats and elected Rep- Republicans together on key legislation. Uh, I helped to start one of those organizations 12 years ago. It's called No Labels, uh, and this, the, the coalitions that this organization has put together in the Congress of the United States have been instrumental in passing recent legislation such as the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill and bipartisan gun legislation. This is not mission impossible. It is, for the reasons I've described, mission improbable. Uh, but that doesn't mean it can't be done and it doesn't mean it's, it's not worth trying to do it. Uh, my second to last recommendation, maybe my last affirmative recommendation, you know, when it comes to presidential primaries, which, believe it or not, will begin to crank up not just a few months after uh, the midterm elections, uh, avoid candidates who will perpetuate and worsen the politics of polarization that I've described. And avoid those candidates even if you agree with their policy agenda. This may be a bitter pill to swallow. But if the greatest danger facing our country today is the depth, intensity, the toxicity of the divisions that threaten to undermine our basic constitutional institutions. If that's the problem, then going for candidates who veer towards the extremes of one party or the other is just going to make that problem worse. In current circumstances, moderation, despite what Barry Goldwater famously said, is indeed a virtue. And it ought to be practiced immoderately. <laughs> now let me get in conclusion to a more speculative issue, that I can feel this issue rising. Many people faced with a the prospect of a rematch of the night of the 2020 presidential election are saying to themselves, oh, no. (laughs) I'm not saying that's the right thing to think, but I can tell you, based on survey research, uh, about 65% of the American people don't think that former President Trump should run to regain the Oval Office, and almost the same share of the American people don't think that President Biden should present himself for renomination and re-election. I have never seen the third party temptation, at least not for a long time, as strong as it is today. It's bubbling under the surface. And I'm pretty confident it's going to break out in one way or another. Think long and hard before you do that. I'm not saying don't. You know, I can see a case for going down that road. But I can see an even stronger case for not going down that road. You know, for accepting the fact uh, that American politics is likely to present us with choices that are suboptimal, but that doesn't mean there's no difference. Not at all. And so, you know, I would I would say, based on more than 200 years of American party politics, which the founders did not want, they did not expect. You know, James Madison, the architect of our Constitution, genuinely believed that the institutions he'd created would prevent the formation of political parties. I once wrote an essay called What James Madison Got Wrong. I revere him, he's my favorite founder, but he sure blew that one. Uh, and the two-party system is our constitutional fate. Uh, and you know, I understand the appeal of using third-party candidates to send the system a message. That's been one of its important functions. And in, hist- in our history, it, it has often uh, led, to, uh, you know, led to new issues being put on the table that influenced and in some ways transformed the existing party system. There are circumstances in which we can permit ourselves the luxury of sending a message. I don't think today is one of those for all the reasons that I've laid out in my talk. You've been terrific. Thank you very much for your patience. And it is now time for the question and answer period, which Jane, I'm told, yes. is going to moderate.
2: thank you very much for the discussion that you've, you have fomented. We have a lot of questions here. Um, what effect has the social media had on the temperature of politics?
0: <laughs> well, let me think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I think we can pretty much pretty much agree you know that social media has poured gasoline on a raging fire. Social media did not create that fire. Didn't start that fire. But it's but it's taken a superheated political scene, and political conversation and made it made it far worse. Now, I will point out that this is not the only time that we've seen this phenomenon, uh, because every change in means of communications going all the way back to the printing press has had the effect of destabilizing politics, at least at the beginning, and of intensifying the conflicts. Uh, Could there have been the Protestant Reformation without the invention of the printing press? Right? Would there have been a hundred years of religious wars without the invention of the printing press? Probably not. There would have been a lot of conflict between the established Catholic Church and the upstart you know, Protestant, uh, Protestant Reformation, or Reformations, I should say, since there were many of them. Uh, but you know, the te- technology made it worse, and... We now, take, we, we now take radio for granted, but look at the way Adolf Hitler used radio, right? In ways, in ways that I think would have been almost unimaginable, you know, to com- one man communicating with a mass audience in real time, sometimes gathered together, not always. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that radio always makes things worse, Look at FDR's fireside chats, you know, which did as much to persuade the country to give him a chance to carry out his program as anything else that he did. But still, uh, social media is always disruptive, but it rarely creates the forces that it exacerbates. And that's my judgment about social media too.
2: But is the current social media more disruptive than FDR's radio talks?
0: (laughs) Well, but that's only half of the baseline of comparison. Is it more disruptive than FDR's radio talk and Adolf Hitler's rants? Uh, And uh, I would argue that the answer to that question is not so easy. And every technological change in means of communication has carried with it big upsides and big downsides and frequently the upsides and the downsides don't occur at the same time. And I think right now we're in a period where the early dreams of the transformative nature of social media have been replaced by something you know like their opposite, you know. Remember the, you know, you know remember the Islamic Spring? That was then.
2: You alluded to this uh, discussion earlier that um, um, given the polarization is going to continue or get worse, what changes in federal law, including the Constitution, are necessary to protect our our republic? You had said that things will take a long time, but what are some of the things that Um, could be done?
0: Well, as... As politicians in Washington, where I've lived probably for too long, would say, I'm glad you asked. Uh, because this gives me an opportunity to focus your attention on a not a constitutional change, but a legislative change that I regard as essential and urgent. Uh, and many of you have probably heard about this. Uh, No, I wasn't alive for the election of 1876, uh, but it was a humdinger, uh, and it led to a real impasse because there were contested slates of electors in three states, and there was no easy way of resolving that problem. It finally ended with what some people regard as a corrupt bargain where the Republican candidate, who obviously lost in the Electoral College, was permitted to assume the presidency, in return for which the Republicans agreed to withdraw federal troops from the South and allow the Southern states to go their own way on racial and other matters. Uh, and 11 years after that deeply contested election, you know, which almost ended in fighting, Uh, a law called the Electoral Count Act was passed, which was enacted for the purpose of eliminating the kinds of uncertainties and ambiguities uh, that almost brought the country down in 1876. Unfortunately, modern scholarship has pointed out, that law, the Electoral Count Act of 1887, was so poorly drafted that it is now not the solution, but an important part of the problem. Uh, bi- a bipartisan group of senators now is trying to reach agreement on the sorts of reforms to the Electoral Count Act that would ward off challenges to states of electors, to slates of electors, which is a very serious possibility in the presidential election coming up. I can think of no more urgent piece of legislation than a reformed electoral count act. And if we don't get that done soon, we're going to conduct the presidential election of 2024 under even more dangerous circumstances that we now see the election of 2020 was conducted under. So if you only have one letter to your senators and representatives that you're willing to write, Devote that letter to urging them to get off the dime and fix the basic electoral mechanisms of our democracy before they blow up in our faces, which they could, and not a century from now, little more than two years from now. This is a matter of great urgency.
2: Thank you for that comment. The Supreme Court needs a judicial fix, wrote one of our listeners today. Can you describe and discuss the idea of an appointment every two years by opposing parties, leading to 18-year term limits, depoliticizing the current untenable situation, or another solution that you might Uh, have up your sleeve?
0: I have long advocated the replacement of life tenure for Supreme Court justices with a single... 18-year term. That is consistent with the practice of constitutional courts throughout Europe. And it would also over time you know, move towards the equalization of nominating rights by presidents, successive presidents rather than having some unlucky presidents who don't get any and lucky presidents who get three or even four. This is not a formula for constitutional stability or constitutional equity. Uh, and life tenure for judges, if you go back to the, the Federal Constitution, Constitutional Convention, was justified on the grounds that that was the only way to insulate them from political pressure. Well, mission accomplished, but uh, we may have gone overboard, uh, as some recent events suggest, and uh, so I, th- uh, I think that that is probably, it's not going to be easy you know, to fix the selection process for Supreme Court justices. But I think that was probably the most likely road where an important reform can be achieved. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, with massive congressional majorities, could not succeed in changing either the number of Supreme Court justices or any other of the changes that he was proposing after his landslide victory in the 1936 presidential contest. If he couldn't do it then, with all of the political skill that he had and with the overwhelming majorities that he commanded, what are the chances that such a strategy could succeed now when we're so evenly divided, as I've argued? Zero. Uh, So, I think it's really important to reform the court. Uh, I'd like to be able to do it tomorrow, but we can't. And pretending that we can just confuses the matter. Uh, I think if we start down the road of doing what we can do, and some scholars have argued that you would not need a constitutional amendment in order to achieve 18-year terms. Others disagree with that. I'm not sure I'm not a constitutional lawyer, I'm not sure who's right about that, Uh, but it does seem to me to be a better course of action than a lot of others.
2: We can only hope.
0: Well, uh, every major world religion teaches that despair is a sin, and I don't see any voluntary sinners (laughs) in this audience, so I assume that hope pervades.
2: Um, A slightly different, question here, what do you think of the common global view of American politics, Um, your perspective of the world's view of our political situation?
0: Well, as it happens, I just returned from an overseas trip to Portugal and an international conference where I got a chance Mm -hmm. to assess at least the views from Europe, not just Western Europe, but Central and Eastern Europe as well. Uh, and they used to think of the United States as a rock. You know, remember, you know, Jesus' famous saying, thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, for more than half a century, America was the rock on which Europe built its church. They don't think that way anymore. They haven't given up on America, not at all. And they wish us well because they understand that without America, a functioning America, their own circumstances would be much worse than they are. But their sense of the political possibilities that the American system can produce has been widened very considerably. And that is not good news, right? You know, they, they never thought that the United States could produce... A party and a president, you know, who could be compared—not always favorably—to, you know, Turkey's Erdogan or Hungary's Orbán or Juan Perón, for those of you who can remember the 50s in in Argentina. Uh, and now it is imaginable. This is bad news because it means, among other things, that. Uh when people compare our system to let us say the Chinese system, they're not nearly as confident as they used to be that one of them was decisively better and the other not. And a fair number, a fair number of large democracies of various sorts around the world are doing the best they can to remain neutral in this tug of war between the United States and to the two great authoritarian powers on earth namely Russia and China they are hedging their bets and that's no accident they don't think they can count on us anymore this is i this is you know, don't shoot the messenger i mean this is a report from Europe but i know from survey research the pew research center for example which some of you may have heard of which in in my estimation is the best, most honest, most reliable survey research center in the world, especially when they're dealing with questions of international survey research. They confirm all of these mounting, mounting, mounting uncertainties. This is a very difficult, this is not a good situation for U.S. leaders to be in uh, because you're President Biden, you go to Europe, you tell them America is back you know what they say in return? Yes, Mr. President, but for how long? That's what worries me.
2: Well, somewhat related to this um, is something you wrote recently in the Wall Street Journal that the US should give Ukraine whatever it needs to success, successfully repel the Russian invaders. Why do you think that this is so important for Ukraine to win, and do you believe victory is within reach? Hmm.
0: Gee, I think I can figure out who wrote that sentence. <laughs> uh, I, write, I write a weekly column for the Wall Street Journal, and that was one of my more recent, recent columns. So let me, let me first of all state what my position is. And I made this explicit in my article. I do not know whether Ukraine can, in fact, win this war. What I do know is that given the stakes, they deserve a fair chance to win it. And that means giving them the weapons that they need and the financial support that they need. I'm not saying that we do that forever, but I am saying in the next six months, which could really be decisive to the outcome of this war, we back them to the hilt. Why should we do that? Answer, the stakes are enormous. Right? And let's, let, let's just back away from the daily newspapers and look at these central points. The peace of Europe, which, history, which, as history suggests, is intimately related to the peace of the world, the peace of Europe, since the Second World War, the end of the Second World War, has rested on the proposition that boundaries will no longer be changed by force of arms. That is the core proposition of the peace in Europe that has mostly prevailed, not perfectly, but mostly uh, for... uh, more than three quarters of a century. Vladimir Putin is frontally challenging that fundamental building block of a peaceful Europe. And as, we, as we've seen twice and could see again, uh, when Europe is at war, the United States may say we're gonna stay out of it, but in the end, we can't, despite the, the sincere wish of a succession of U.S. presidents to stay out. If we permit Ukraine to lose, you know, to have their independence, their territorial integrity snuffed out, you know, by an aggressor uh, who's, who sees no moral limits, uh, What makes us think that he's going to stop there? This is a man, after all, who in a speech two weeks ago compared himself to Peter the Great. And I'll tell you a story, which is funny but not funny. Uh, Vladimir Putin, a few years ago, was uh, visiting a classroom, I think it was sixth graders, you know who were getting lessons in Russian geography. And one of the sixth sixth graders was asked by the teacher, well, where does the border of Russia end? And he said, the student said, well, Vladivostok, of course. And Putin says, no, no, no. The borders of Russia never end. And in his mind, he was telling the truth, right? Uh, And... Like Peter the Great, there are no obvious natural limits to what he will take if he thinks he has a chance to take it. So this isn't just a local skirmish. This war is a really big deal, and how it ends is a really big deal. And do I think that we should give President Zelensky the weapons that he's asking for? Yes, I do for the aforementioned reason. Do I think that we should be part of an international coalition that gives him the $5 billion a month that he needs to stave off economic disaster and keep basic services flowing in a country who, as a result of the invasion, is likely to see its gross domestic product slashed by 45% in 20... 45%, right? Think about what the United States would be like if almost half of our GDP were destroyed, it would make it would make the the recession that followed the spread of the of, of the COVID pandemic look like a tea party. So yes, you know, that's why I think this is so important. That's why I took the strong but I think correct position that I did and. I would be happy to argue this with anyone in this room or in Washington uh, who cares to prosecute the case. Uh, and I'm, I'm open to argument and evidence. Uh, one argument I've heard is it's clear that the Ukrainians can't beat the Russians, so why are we pouring good money, bad, you know, good money after bad? Why are we just lending them weapons which the Russians will destroy? Wouldn't it be more responsible to urge them to strike whatever bargain they can with Mr. Putin before they lose everybody? That's probably the best argument against me, but that's I have a some very things to say good and that.
2: passionate one. Hmm. I'm going to return to American politics. Yes. Do you see, because oh, that's so easy, <laughs> do you see term limits for Congress, the Senate's? even Supreme Court judges, as an answer to the stagnation of American governance?
0: Uh, As I've said, I think extended term limits would be a good idea for the Supreme Court. For the Congress of the United States, absolutely not. Uh, The last thing we need is a Congress with even less policy expertise than we have now. (laughs) But that's what we would get with term limits. And I'll tell you what that would mean in practice because we've seen it in states that use term limits. That means that even more power would shift away from elected representatives towards staff, you know, committee staff and even personal staff because those people aren't term limited, and also to the bureaucracy. Is that really what we want right now? Certainly not what I want. So, no. <laughs>
2: Um, I'm gonna do the final question here, and it's very close to an issue for me. How do we get more than 50, 60, not even, percent of eligible voters to vote? And what difference would that make?
0: Well, actually, actually, um, we've hit that mark. We hit that mark in 2020.
2: But how do we get more? I mean, how do we get 70 80% of the, of the people to vote?
0: Well, I'll, I'll tell you what the political scientists say. They say that one reason that turnout in national elections isn't as high as it is in Europe is that we have many times more elections than they do in Europe. And, you know, that it's unreasonable to expect people to vote as often as they do in Europe. I mean, look at the French. Okay? The French have just had not only their presidential election, which will last, the results of which will last for five years, they just had their legislative election, which will also endure for five years. And because they have such a centralized system, there's not a lot of voting for local. There's no, there's no equivalent in France to the states that have a certain amount of constitutional autonomy in our in our system. So, you know, one answer to the question is to have fewer elections. As long as we have our federal system, and I think it's a good thing that we do, we can't really reduce the number of elections very much. But one way we could raise turnout, at least I'm channeling some political scientists now who know what they're talking about, is to have as many of these elections as possible occur on the same day. So some states, for reasons of their own, uh, deliberately stage their gubernatorial elections and and their state legislative elections so as not to correspond to the national vote. And there are some political objectives that you can achieve by separating the two, but this is the kind of thinking that generates so many elections and tends to reduce voting turnout. Regrettably, when you're talking about raising turnout in the current institutional circumstances, the best way to do that is to have highly divisive contests where the stakes are enormous. But that means that the solution to your problem is the problem that I spent this lecture talking about.
2: (laughs) Then that turned out to be the most perfect last question. Um, I just want to say that you have not given us a roadmap of where to go, but you've given us a lot of ideas about what what could be on that map. And I want to thank and I hope everyone now gives a big thanks to Bill Galston for an excellent
0: thank you for listening to seminars at Steamboat. We'd like to thank KUNC for hosting our podcast. Support for seminars comes from the generous support of individuals and organizations in our community. For more information about our organization or to view the video recording of this or any of our previous seminars, please visit seminars at steamboat.org.